there's like a deep part of me that like from that experience in my teen years is still so afraid of putting things out into the world and so I suppose that's that's the sort of not necessarily regret but I could get very curious about could I have done something more creative for my career you know I could wonder about that Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to my friend Danica Brown about the book The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. The Midnight Library is a novel about a woman named Nora who is 35 and living in England, and she has a lot of regrets. She feels like she has wasted a lot of potential. She's estranged from some people that she really cares about. And she feels like life isn't worth living anymore. And she finds herself magically in the Midnight Library, which contains an infinite number of books that describe lives that she could have lived if she had made different choices. And it contains the Book of Regrets, which shows all of her regrets. She's guided through the library by the librarian, Mrs. Elm, and she gets to explore these unlived lives and see how things could have gone. I really enjoyed this book, and I feel like the themes are just so timeless. I I feel like in life, we're always kind of trying to balance feeling grateful and content with the life that we have, and then at the same time, having dreams for the future, having regrets about the past, and, and no matter what you choose, it's totally normal and human to wonder about lives you could have lived. And I think this is something that actually isn't talked about all that much and that people don't always share with each other, these wonderings that they have or even regrets that they have about their lives. And we all have them and it doesn't even mean that there's necessarily anything wrong with our life. And it can help us to enjoy the present more or to make different choices in the future. Danica and I spend time in this episode talking about things that we wonder about, unlived lives of our own, even some regrets that we have. But I think the really hopeful thing is that by sharing this, I I hope it's comforting to other people to hear people talking about all of the different things we wonder about. And also that, you know, we do grow and change and we can make different choices in the present and in the future. I think these regrets, like we can be sad and have grief about missed opportunities or loss, and we can also accept and appreciate that we made the best choice that we could at the time, that maybe even things like our fear protected us from things we just didn't want, which is also totally fine or weren't ready for yet, and we have the ability in the present and the future to make different choices moving forward and to keep just learning and growing. I'm so grateful that Danica came on to talk about this with me. She's so thoughtful and kind and down to earth and authentic. We met because she reached out to me on Instagram at some point after listening to Perennials just to tell me some thoughts she had about an episode and we've become friends and it's so lovely to have that connection in my life now. Danica recently moved to Bendigo, Australia think that's how you pronounce it, and is figuring it out as she goes along. Outside of her job at a mental health not-for-profit, she is a chronic Instagram scroller, cooking control freak, a nature lover, and a TV watcher. She loves to read, 
both as an escape and as a way to learn more about people and the worlds they inhabit. And her goal is to read 30 books this year. I so appreciated this conversation with Danica, her honesty and her wisdom, and I think you'll really enjoy it too. Danica, welcome to Perennials. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Perennials and reaching out to me on Instagram. However long ago that was, it's so fun now to come full circle and get to have you on. I feel like I've been listening to your podcast since it started Mm. um, because I think I found it through your aunt, Mm -hmm. Cheryl, who I'd been following for a while. So yeah, it's probably been however long it's been since you (laughs) have been doing the podcast. Uh, But yes, huge, huge perennial stan. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, or rather ideas that are, that come up a lot in this book and themes from this book and how we relate to some of these themes. And I think I've heard Matt Haig talk about this book as kind of a love letter to libraries. I, I know for myself, I was definitely a huge bookworm growing up and I really lived vicariously through characters and books and then also later in TV shows and movies. And I remember being a teenager and realizing at a certain point, like, oh, I'm kind of hiding in these books and almost kind of resenting how I could hide in them as opposed to really living and fully inhabiting my own life and having my own adventures and things like that. When you reflect back on younger years, did you grow up kind of living vicariously through characters at all, which could be feel like a really good thing? Um, could at different point, points maybe feel like hiding? Yes. I was also a big bookworm in high school, especially. And I still love to read, but I find it a lot harder now, which is a whole other conversation about our brains and how they're wired to be addicted to sort of this like fast pace. But yes, I read a lot in high school and I remember that obviously Harry Potter was my number one favorite. It got me It was like the book that really got me into reading. I think a lot of people had this experience with the Harry Mm -hmm. Potter books. It's a book that really got me into reading and I read them many times and I still do read them relatively often, like maybe every couple of years or something like that. When I feel like I'm in need of comfort, I think as a teenager, yes, I lived vicariously through the characters, but I never felt like resentful of that. I, I think because my anxiety didn't start until I was in my twenties. I mean, I, I think I felt like I was maybe like escaping, but it didn't feel compulsive or like avoidant. Mm -hmm. um, If that makes sense. Um, It was just like, a joyous experience for me Mm -hmm. um, in those years to read and to be in the minds of those characters. Like, you know, when you read a book and you're like, it's like you're there. It's like you don't even notice that you're reading. But then in my 20s, I would say I didn't 
so much use reading as an escape. It was more like TV or movies Mm -hmm. or things like that, that I would use to immerse myself in the world of, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it felt like I could avoid anxiety or other things that I just didn't want to think about. I think reading hadn't really worked for me in that sense because it does take so much more energy Mm -hmm. Um, depending on the book if it's like one of those real like suck you in kind of books then maybe yeah (laughs) Harry Potter definitely (laughs) I reread the Harry Potter books many times and I was really drawn to I guess like living through both Harry and Hermione in like you said in a way that is that was a very joyous escape. Like, I think that's the two sides of the coin with reading. There's like the joyous escape and genuine insight and beautiful experience of being able to tap into these lives that you can't or haven't lived or maybe even inspiring you to do certain things. And then the other side of the coin for me was just in my shyness and my anxiety and my timidity kind of hiding in that and needing to. Mm needing to pay attention to that. But I think that I was really drawn to Hermione just being so smart and capable and ambitious. And then Harry, there's a courage and integrity, I guess, of even if something Mm. is really scary and you don't want to do it, (laughs) being able to do it. Uh, I mean, I... This is probably an unpopular opinion, actually, because I feel like Harry cops a lot of shit mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as a character. And he's definitely like a flawed character. But I feel like I deeply identified with him mm-hmm. on some level because and like probably even more so in my 20s, but like his like experience of like his emotional experience throughout the books is just very like relatable like I think it's in the fifth book when he gets all like teenagery mm-hmm. and like rebellious and like like you know obviously well not obviously but I, I'm very lucky that the things that I was dealing with as a teenager <laughs> were not on the same level of intensity is what he was dealing with um but you know you could sort of you can sort of like really feel what he's going through I think and and when I had my first sort of big experience of like anxiety and depression I reread the books and there's obviously a lot of metaphors that she draws in those books about um mental illness and particularly like anxiety and depression I think and um it's it's really nice to see how the characters deal with that basically Mm -hmm. particularly how Harry deals with that even though he's having you know scary thoughts or scary feelings he's still very motivated to fight it or to do the right thing or to keep going or however you want to kind of phrase it yeah. Yeah. So I love Harry as a character, even though he 
he is deeply flawed. And, you know, there there are of course like a lot of issues with those those books that I wouldn't wouldn't have picked up on as a teenager, but right. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I, most people have something handed to them that they don't want in life, whether it's like, oh, this anxiety or this depression or this, I don't, you know, some situation. And so I think that's a way in which we can relate to Harry is like, he's handed this burden, responsibility, you know, whatever. And um, I think we can relate to that. Mm, a little bit like Frodo and the ring. Yeah. 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 And I feel like we all kind of have things like that at some point in life, maybe not super early on, but like eventually. So mm. In the Midnight Library, Nora is, she has some, some talents and some skills that she feels like she has kind of wasted, right? <laughs> um, she was a very good swimmer and also a good musician. And there are these expectations from her family. So her, her father, when she was a teenager, saw that she was a good swimmer and really wanted to push her to continue to compete in swimming and like get to the Olympics. But she ended up as a teenager, I think she was like 15 or something. And she stopped swimming because the pressure was like too much. And then when she was a little bit older, like in college, um, she and her brother were in a band together and they were kind of on the brink of like maybe really making it or being successful. They, they had the opportunity I think to sign a record deal and she walked away from it. So she disappointed her father. She disappointed her brother and she took these talents that she had for swimming and music and, and she walked away from potential success. So in the, in the midnight library, she gets to explore what if she had been an Olympic swimmer? What if their band had hit it really big for so many people, there are some familial expectations about who we could be or things that we could do. And I'm curious for you, did you grow up with any, or at some point have expectations from anyone in your family that you either did or didn't meet and either fulfilled or in their eyes, maybe disappointed? <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty lucky in a lot of ways that my parents I don't think my parents ever placed their own, you know, this idea of like when your parents have their unfulfilled lives and they then place that burden on their children to kind of, yeah, live out their dreams for them. Um, I don't think my parents ever, ever did that with me. Or if they did, it was like extremely <laughs> subtle. <laughs> it was never something that felt that felt forced. There was always an expectation on myself and my brothers that we would go to university, which we did. And I remember re rebelling against that for a short period of time and being like, what if I don't want to go to university? What mm -hmm. if I just, want to, <laughs> you know, what if I want to learn a trade or join the army? I I would never have joined the army, by the way. <laughs> uh, but you know, just that like uh, testing my parents. But yeah, I did end up going to university. All three of us ended up going to university. Um, but yeah, I wonder what 
they would have been like if I had been really passionate about something else that didn't involve that path. No, I, I generally feel very lucky that my parents were pretty open-minded about letting us choose what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, my parents were never like, you have to do this thing. My dad really loves music and my mom really loves books and writing. And, and so my mom is always like, you'd be such a good English professor. And my dad was always kind of telling us like me and my siblings, like you guys are so talented. You should form a band and, you know. Yeah. Well, in that sense, actually, you're reminding me of something because my dad is also very musical and at different points of his life he's been a performer and in bands and now that he's retired he's in like another season of that where he's you know really passionate about writing music and performing and he's you know he's in an acapella group and um it's he's yeah he's very talented um and myself and both of my brothers um inherited that to a degree um you know we can all sing on key and uh you know myself and one of my brothers played the guitar and then my other brother played the bass and so yeah we also we, we got comments like that from dads as well Um, And I think because I was so into songwriting um, as a teenager as well, and in my early 20s, I had another um, moment of that. I think dad would have loved it if I had somehow like found a way to be like a professional musician. Mm -hmm. But it, it was, yeah, again, like it was never like a pressure, but it is those like those subtle like, that subtle like signaling mm-hmm. of when you know you really pick up on that as well I think of like my dad or my mom really likes it when I do this thing I get all of this like right. positive reinforcement or praise and you know they'll always ask you know when you're on the phone it's like oh have you been playing much music lately mm-hmm. and I was like no <laughs> Like, yeah. I literally haven't been playing for so long. And you feel a little bit disappointing. And mm. it's not it's not because they truly would be disappointed in you, but it's just, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I feel, I feel like my parents love me no matter what, but it is very subtle, I think. And as someone, I mean, we're all eager to please our parents. Um, and sometimes even those really subtle little things can be enough to make you, I don't know, question your choices or feel a little bit like you're not living up to certain expectations or um, what you think the expectations might be. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I do feel like at a certain point, sometimes those creative things can get really hard for us when we get older and we start to go like, oh, wait, am I supposed to be trying to get like really good at this? And am I supposed to be trying to be successful in this thing? Or is this just like something that I enjoy doing that I don't 
don't have to share with anyone or can share with people, but there's no expectation around making money doing it necessarily, or making Mm. a lot of money or being really successful in that, you know, I feel like that's a tricky thing. And I think it gets to a lot of people when you get a little bit older, like, well, why am I even doing this thing anymore? If I'm not, I didn't like fulfill my potential in it or, or like, did I really have that potential? I don't really know. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel that, especially with music, I always felt like it was all or nothing. Like Mm -hmm. either I'm going to make this my career Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or I'm just, I can't do it at all. Yeah. I also just felt like, I feel like I've never had a ton of discipline when it comes to the boring parts of, of learning to be really good at something or the, the more technical and demanding parts. So like I, I sang a lot growing up. So I sang in choirs, I sang in the talent show. I did a little bit of piano lessons even now with guitar, I find it so hard to push through really boring, difficult, uncomfortable parts of learning. I'm very hard on myself and I get very obsessed. Maybe this is my OCD brain. I'm not sure with like understanding things perfectly. So if I feel like I don't understand it perfectly, I get very overwhelmed And when I'm aware of how much there is to understand about something like music theory, I'm just like, well, I can't, I can't understand that. I don't have that brain. Like I just don't have a brain for music theory. I don't have a brain for learning a different language. I don't have a brain for dot, dot, dot. So. Mm, Yeah. Every time, because I got quite good at one point in my teenager, Mm -hmm. in my teen years, because I actually did get lessons. My dad taught me up to a period and then I, ended up getting lessons and I got quite good so now whenever I pick up a guitar to play it sounds so bad (laughs) right and instead of just being like oh if I like practiced like a couple of hours a week it would start to sound better like it might take me a while to sound really good again but I'm just like it sounds bad it's really hard and boring to learn guitar and you have to go through that period where like you are developing like the calluses on your fingers and it really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and I just like can't be bothered, which is so sad because there is a part of me that absolutely loves playing music. And I feel like if I could just get it to come to me with ease and I could make the guitar make the sounds that I want it to make, I would play all the time. Yeah. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's like the wishful thinking. Maybe that's getting into the regrets. <laughs> right. Right. The regret isn't necessarily that like, I mean, I, 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 I could sit here and wonder about like, oh, what would have happened if I had like made that my whole life? But like, I don't really regret that per se. What I do regret is not keeping up skill of playing um because like you singing was something that came to me a little bit more easily but yeah playing requires like 
practice and, and dedication. And I'm also like extremely undisciplined. I was speaking with my therapist recently and one of my, one of my schemas is something, it's something like, uh, like poor self-control or something like that. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I am really bad with that sort of stuff. Um, I shouldn't say I'm really bad, but it, it's like a coping mechanism that I use. I think um, Nora is afraid of success. And I think like I really identify with that. And I'm also so um, self-conscious and insecure. Like I remember um, I made this like little mini like EP CD when I was like 15 or so. And I was so proud of it. My dad had like really encouraged me and we like went to record it and, you know, into like a proper studio and everything. I mean, not, it wasn't like a fancy studio. It was like some guy's backyard, you know? And um, yeah, I made like a bunch of these CDs and I designed the cover and I was like, this is like breaking my heart. I was like ready to sell them and stuff. And so I'd like, you know, there were like a few people at school that bought them and like my parents' friends and stuff like that. So like, it was like $10. And um, yeah, one day I was like, I was playing it in the car with a friend and her sister's boyfriend was in the car too. I don't know. And we were listening to one of the songs and they were like, they like laughed or snickered about some mm. part of it. And I just, that was like, went to my core. Mm -hmm. I was like, so wounded. Like, this is how insecure I was. And I feel like that was kind of the beginning of the end for me being yeah. like really interested in music because I was like, oh, you know, with music, it's so vulnerable, especially if you're writing your own songs. You put yourself out there in a way and, like, people can, like, people can, like, hurt you if you yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. And I didn't have any way of, like, coping with that at the time. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of, that was, like, the start of me being, like, uh, you know, and then you start to be like, oh, I just don't really like it anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, I just don't really that into it. Like, mm. I'd rather do something else. You know, all these like things that your brain starts to come up with to kind of get you to. <laughs> yeah, run away from that threat. Because mm. being being laughed at is a terrible, awful feeling, especially when mm. you're, when it's something that's so like, this is who I am. And like, this is something I'm yeah. proud of. And then for someone yeah. to laugh at you, it's just really hard. And it's, it's like a survival thing. I think at, at a very base level, it's like, mm. we don't want to be rejected by the group. Like we survive yeah. by having connections and relationships and it gets to like a, I think, a like survival part of our brain. That's like, oh no, they're going to reject me. Like I need to not do that. Yeah. And then I think in a bigger sense, like that creative part of me <laughs> um, that was so 
engaged and so alive through that process became very repressed. And then in my 20s, when I decided, like, well, when I was like writing again um, and playing again, um, and I was at a very kind of lost point in my life, I was like long distance with my partner at the time. And um, I was working in retail after finishing my degree in a job like that I didn't care about. Like I didn't care about working in retail. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. And I had moved back home with my parents. And anyway, I was writing a lot. But even then it felt like it was just like I was in a place of such lostness <laughs> that I didn't have any other op option but to write music mm -hmm. like that was so lonely and so lost that I just had to use that but I think I think it would be healthy for me to engage with creativity more in my life and I do in little ways um don't get me wrong but yeah there's like a like this is this this is getting deep Victoria but there's like a deep part of me that like from that experience in my teen years is still so afraid mm -hmm. of putting things out into the world and so I suppose that's that's the sort of not necessarily regret but I could get very curious about you know could I have done something more creative for my career? Is that why I've chosen a more, yeah, a typical path of like, you know, nine to five work, you know, I could wonder about that. Um, but then also, I mean, you know, I had other things like I used to be really, really good at surfing when I was a teenager. And I stopped that when I moved, when I was, 15, 16, I moved, had a big move to a different city, stopped doing that. I was never really that good at that many things. I would say they're the two big things mm. for me. Yeah. Well, just so you know, I feel deeply, <laughs> I, I always have a flash of like deep regret after I put out a podcast episode that's just me talking, um, where I'm just like, what? was I thinking? Why would I do that? Who do I think I am? I, there aren't that many of them, but the few solo episodes I've done, I right after I'm just like, holy crap. Like why, why did I do that? Cause it feels a lot more, even though I think the interviews are very telling about me because I'm the questions that I ask, like, there I am. I'm in all like, you can get a feel for who I am in the questions I ask, but there's something about just who do I think I am? Like, why do I think I have the authority to like speak and then like put that or anytime I've written like an Instagram caption, that's like deep thoughts, you know, I'm like, who do I think I am? Like why? And why did I do that? And why didn't I do it better? Like, I, I always feel like I could have done something better. And I think that, I think for me, a lot of it, like you, like, I don't, I'm not like, oh, I could have been a musician or I could have been a novelist. Like I I'm not obsessed by ideas of like regrets about paths I didn't take per se, but I think that part of that is also just because I have such a hard time just making a decision and committing 
that the idea of even having been able to do that is so far off for me because like having to be so singularly focused and minded to actually commit to things like that. I'm just like, I I don't think any universe Victoria like has that in her. I don't know, maybe, but um, yeah, I think for me, like part of the lack of discipline is like a lack of being able to just decide this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm putting Mm. my time into. And I'm just going to commit to it because I'm so aware of um, loss and death and the passage of time that I'm just constantly like, am I wasting it? Am I like, is this what I should be doing with it? Um, And then I just end up like scrolling through Instagram. So yeah. yeah. Uh, I know this isn't what you were trying to I know you weren't seeking this from that comment, but I just wanted to say they're some of my favorite episodes oh. that you, you do are the solo ones because it's like it's like reading someone else's diary kind of, you know, and uh, <laughs> it feels very, uh, yeah, familiar and relatable. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I love those episodes. Well, thank you. <laughs> wondering if anyone liked them. <laughs> well, and I, 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 I have done them because I really like those. What, like, I like to listen to podcasts like that. Mm. I appreciate learning more about people and, and yeah, like being able to hear about someone's experience and be like, oh yeah, I, I get that. Mm. And, and usually like the regret passes, but there's always at least a moment where I regret the vulnerability mm. and then I'll obsess on what I could have done and should have done better. Yeah. I think as a way of but you just, did it anyway. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that you did it anyway. Yeah. I think that's, you have to be willing to feel some of that discomfort if you want to, you know, I mean, if we're, to- if we're talking therapy stuff, if you want to <laughs> move towards your values and you want to live that life, there's going to be discomfort along the way. It's bloody hard to push past the anticipation of that even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's helpful for me to look at other people that I admire and hear them talk about, you know, how embarrassed they are by their for Actually, I just heard Matt Haig in an interview talking about his early books and how he's like, oh man, I like, kind of cringe at some of them you know he was like I'm not trying to be too down on myself but like I was really still finding my voice like my early writings were so pretentious my first book was like you know I think it was like a like a retelling of a Shakespeare play but with dogs as all of the characters (laughs) or something um and then also he said like you know he had a much more like kind of pessimistic like he's kind of known for being more optimistic now but when he was more like in his depression, like his writing was Mm. not so optimistic and hopeful. Um, it really helps me to hear people talk about just having to like the, that the only way to learn is just to do it. And you're gonna early on do things that you look back on and you're like, Oh, that wasn't great, but it's literally the only way to do it. And Mm. I got to a point, at least with doing the podcast where I was like, well, and even with like trying to learn guitar, which I really love and also find incredibly frustrating because I feel like why 
do my fingers still hurt so much and things like that. Um, but it's like the only difference between someone who does it and someone who doesn't is that the person who does it does it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's not not very profound. It's so true. <laughs> but it's just like at a certain point, you just have to like try to do it. Anyway, for for me, I'll just say quickly because I I also have thought about other careers like teaching and counseling. I still, to be honest, think a lot about counseling, um, working as a therapist, getting that education. And I think for me, I have in the, in the same sense of having a fear of like both failure and success, I have a real fear of responsibility, like a fear of not being capable or not being able to handle something or being responsible, like making a big Mm. mistake or hurting somebody. Or so I think as I get older, I'm hopeful that I do feel that shifting in me a little bit, but it's very uncomfortable and difficult for me to like truly, even though ironically as a kid, people were always like, you're so responsible, but that just meant like, I don't know. I was like quiet and did my homework and stuff and like studied and did well on tests. But when it comes to actually stepping into like the shoes of an adult and being like, I'm in charge of the situation and I know I can handle it. And I, you know, I've got this, it like really scares me. So Mm. I hope, I hope that I can continue to work with that because I think that is something I just need for my life, no matter what I do, but I would really like I, I would not want that to stop me from doing, it can crop up in any job, to be honest. Like you think you could yeah. get away from it. You actually really can't. So I'd rather be, I'd rather really work with that and need it and do something that I find really fulfilling, but it can really crop up anywhere. So I just need to work on it. <laughs> Keep working on yeah. it. <laughs> I, I relate to that in a really big way. And in jobs that I've done previously that genuinely did carry such a huge responsibility that probably felt like even more of a responsibility for um, someone who's on that anxious spectrum. I felt like I couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And instead of pushing past that at the time, I like moved on to something Mm -hmm. else because I was like, I cannot handle this feeling that if something goes wrong, it's going to be a hundred percent my fault. And, you know, I just can't, I can't handle it. Right. Which is such a like, well, you can, you can handle it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at the time, you know, I was much younger and, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. This this is like, that was in right in the middle of my first kind of anxiety yeah. moment that I'd had. But yeah, I think that's still very scary to feel like other people are relying on you or something might might come down to you right like whether something succeeds or fails might come down to you and something that you do or don't do I think that's very very scary (laughs) yeah 
this is a regret. I think that as a teenager, I didn't really rebel or like push boundaries or explore as much or experiment as much because I I was always just so afraid of doing something bad or getting in trouble. I was always trying to be like moral and virtuous, like as a kid and, Mm. but it's a very just self-protective thing. But then on the flip side, I also just, I tend to take on other people's like feelings and experiences. And I just want to make it okay for everyone in a way that you just Mm. fundamentally can't. Like, I, I feel like it's like a very, it's a, a type of maturity to be able to see even the people you love the most, you can't control everything that happens to them or what they, how they respond to things. And you are going to hurt them sometimes, not because you want to, but just because sometimes we say stupid things or we do stupid things because we're all human. And so I think that has affected, that has just affected things that I've done or not done is that this, un, this, uh, inflated sense of responsibility. Makes it harder for me to actually take responsibility for the things that are my responsibility sometimes. Yeah. Um, Because of what it might mean, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, it's just like not tolerable for me to like watch people hurting. Feels like Mm. I should be able to fix it somehow. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm really bad at that. And I want to get better at not jumping in immediately and mm-hmm. just letting them, letting the other person who is in pain feel it out. Yeah. It's like um, a sort of trust in life. It requires a mm. certain like trust in that person that they can handle it. Trust in yourself mm. that you can handle it and trust in like life. Mm. Oh, I, got, I have trust issues. <laughs> I don't trust life. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like we've spoken about this before, just in our emails or whatever. But yeah, that fear that you won't be able to handle whatever life's going to throw at you in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> As I mentioned before in, in the Midnight Library, Nora you know, she kind of feels like she has disappointed her dad and her brother. And in, in her present life, she's kind of estranged from her brother. Um, her dad and her mom both have died by the time she's, I think like in her early mid twenties, like her dad dies when she's a teenager, her mom dies when she's in her early twenties. And then she has a best friend who moved to Australia. And so she also has these thoughts about, you know, like what certain relationships could have been like in other lives. And then there, she wonders about, um, you know, she, she broke off an engagement to her boyfriend, Dan, and she wonders if that was a mistake, if she should have stayed with Dan and she kind of gets to see like what their life would have been like in one scenario, if they had stayed together. So I'm just curious when it comes to relationships, whether it's family, friends, romantic, you know, whatever that might look like, if there are lives that you wonder about when it comes to relationships? Yeah, I think the big one for me, and this is, it's become a point of of rumination, shall we say, in the past, Mm -hmm. but 
the big one for me is that I've been with my partner now for 13 years. We mm-hmm. got together at the start of university, basically, or like not right at the start, but, you know, in the first year of university. Um, and we've been together ever since. Um, so the big one would be what would life have been like had I had more single years in my 20s because I literally don't know what that's like like mm-hmm. I haven't had that experience and the majority of my friends um, were able to experience that and are still single and they dated and I'm sure if they were here to like talk to me about this I'd be like it's really not that great yeah <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah like I definitely had times of being like I wonder what that would have been like and is that something that I should have done or I was supposed to do or missed out on Mm -hmm. in some way so that would be like the biggest one and by the way I should say I don't regret my relationship with my (laughs) my partner of course like I feel very very lucky to have him but yeah that's that's a big one I guess the other things would be like at other times I've like wondered about what my friendships could have been like if I wasn't so anxious slash introverted like I had a conversation with a friend recently about how like when we're feeling crappy or we feel like we need to reach out to someone it's actually really hard to do that Mm -hmm. I don't know like either because you just don't feel like talking about yourself so you don't want someone to be like how are you because then you're just like yeah good you'll start crying or whatever and then you'll have to be like vulnerable in front of that person I think that is a huge issue for me and I think It's not that I don't think about how other people are, how other people are going, are going, or it's not that I don't want to support my friends, but I feel like so often that feeling of like, oh God, like I'm going to have to like be present in this conversation. I'm going to have to talk about myself or my life sometimes takes precedence over that value of I want to be there for and support and love my friends Mm -hmm. and so that's like definitely one and I have some beautiful great wonderful friendships of people that I love but at the moment I moved so I moved to a new city um six months ago and I'm feeling some loneliness for the first time in a really long time um, because we don't really have very many friends here. um, And plus we were recently in a lockdown, so that's not great. Um, But it's just so hard for me to reach out to friends that, you know, it's one of those things as well that's so funny. It's like when you actually call people and you start talking, it's totally fine and it's great and it's lovely. But yeah, it's that anticipation. Again, it's like, oh God, 
Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's an added layer. Like if you are struggling with depression, anxiety, OCD, intrusive thoughts, things like that, there can be the fear of like, as much as someone loves me and means well, like might they say something that is really unhelpful in that moment or sets me <laughs> off when you're like really yeah. in a deep, you know, dark place mm. sometimes. Um, mm. But I can relate to all of that. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I was just so, so anxious. I had so much separation anxiety. I was shy. I was socially anxious. And so I wonder a lot about friendships that I could have had or social experiences that I could have had. Mm. I didn't join the softball team. I didn't continue with dance classes. I felt really anxious about sleepovers. I didn't go away to camp, like all of these things where it's like, well, might I have had stronger connections or at least a stronger connection with myself and my sense of being capable and able to do things. Um, but also just what might I have learned about myself if I had like dated in high school? Mm. Um, I mean, I had a brief three month, three month, uh, quote unquote relationship when I was 17 in high school. I also just tended to be really boy crazy and always seeing guys through the lens of romance. So I didn't have like hey. a lot of guy friends and I always just saw the potential or lack of potential for like flirting and romance and falling in love. Yeah. I kind of regret that. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> like why? Ugh. Right. And in that sense, like I was kind of objectifying those myself and those people, like instead yeah. of just seeing people as human beings and just trying to connect as human yeah. beings and see, I don't know. Um, and then I, was with my college boyfriend from freshman year through like right after graduation. Um, and then went through like a very messy drawn out break slash breakup. Um, I definitely wonder like if we had broken up sooner or if I had handled the breakup better, um, how I might've not hurt him as much, not hurt myself as much, um, had different experiences. And then I, I met Martin and started dating him fairly soon after all of that. So I also just, even though I was kind of single briefly, kind of had some experiences, uh, even, I guess that's the thing you can always just be like, well, I didn't do it right. Like I didn't yeah. do the breakup right. I didn't do the single-ish thing right. I didn't do any of it right. I get very stuck on like, well, this is how it was supposed to be developmentally or linearly mm. or, you know. And I think there's a lot of judgment yeah. around like, oh, they went straight from this relationship mm -hmm. to that relationship. They didn't give themselves enough time in between or they just weren't ready to start that relationship or uh, yeah. I mean, I think for people that didn't get that single time as well, I think there is judgment out there for like, I feel like it's so funny because I think so many people want to have 
like a beautiful long-term relationship but then there's all of this stuff around like I think of RuPaul like if you don't love yourself how the hell are you gonna love somebody else like but I feel like that's such bullshit (laughs) no offense I love RuPaul and I love Drag Race but I think that's such bullshit I think you don't have to be fully at peace and empowered and in this perfect place within yourself to be able to be in a relationship with another person right um I think that that's really not true at all (laughs) it's kind of what we were talking about before you learn by doing things like Mm. you learn to love yourself by being loved by people and by loving people like it's Mm. never going to happen in a vacuum and yeah so and also like you know, my boyfriend, Martin, like he was 19 when we got together. I was 23. So like quite a cougar, but he, he's been doing wildland firefighting for the past couple of years. And he goes out like six months of the year out West to Montana. Right now he's in, he's in Michigan for a couple of weeks. Um, and he has said to me, like, I don't know that I would have done that if I wasn't with you, because I always Mm. know that I have basically like a secure base in me, you know, which is like a healthy form of attachment. It's the ideal, ideal for like kids to grow up with the sense of like, well, I can fly far because I have this, I always have this place to return to. So I think it's like, it's just so not, it's just not that simple in black and white. It's just, there are so many beautiful ways to live and grow. So, Mm. um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking back to before when I said, oh, you know, I was just like wondering what it would have been like had I been single. And I think the tendency for people to be like, oh, shit, you had those thoughts? Right, right, right. Oh, no, like something must be really wrong. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, like how you can do that to yourself sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, no, I had these thoughts like should I even be in this relationship if yeah. I'm having those thoughts? But it's like, God, like if you're in a relationship with someone for any extended amount of time, you're going to wonder about yeah. like different paths in life. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't love your partner. <laughs> right. It's totally yeah. natural and normal and human to have like all sorts of thoughts and there's nothing wrong with it. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything's wrong. What I think is really interesting is just watching people. If you watch the people in your life, the way that people contradict themselves and change over time, like sometimes I have to remember when I'm talking about my relationship at times, like I've been with Martin for seven years. I don't know if you have this feeling, but like if I'm talking to someone who's been with their partner for two years, we have a very different perspective. Like Mm. you're talking to someone who's been with your partner for 13 years. You're probably talking to a lot of people at your age who've been with theirs for a fraction of that time. And that's a very different experience to be in. Like they're going to have a very different perspective once they've been with someone for 13 years. And it's almost funny sometimes years later to be like, oh, that friend who, you know, was saying X, Y, and Z at this point in life. Yeah, they they have a totally different or mm. or a somewhat different perspective or a more nuanced perspective now. Mm. You know? mm. 
Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, yeah, like, same. <laughs> My perspective is <laughs> always, always changing about these sorts of things. And I have and can be, like, super judgmental at times. So it's always oh, yeah, good me too. to me to be able to reflect on that <laughs> and grow a bit from that. Yeah. Um, yeah. On that theme, you know, Nora, Nora wonders what it would have been like if she had, in this case, if she had stayed with her boyfriend, Dan, and he had this dream of opening a country, a, a pub in the English countryside. And so she gets to go see what that would have been like. And it's less than idyllic, right? Like there are things about it that, that seem kind of idyllic. And then there are things that are definitely not. It's really funny because my college boyfriend said to me, he really wanted to move to London and did. And he said to me, I think you'll really regret it if you don't move to London or try living in London. And like, I had no, that was totally his dream, not mine. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I will. And I can say I never have, I've never regretted not moving to London. But Matt Haig talked about how like owning a pub in the country is this really kind of classic dream for people in England. And so we get to kind of explore like with all the different lives in the book, like none of it is just like, oh, this is the perfect life, right? There's always just shades of things that are good, things that are not so good. Sometimes things are like really not good, but it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all shades. I'm curious if you have a dream or like fantasy that you suspect in real life wouldn't be so romantic as it is in your brain. Oh man. Okay. Let me lay it out for you. Have you ever watched the TV show River Cottage? No, but I I'm loving it already. I'm like sold from the name. Okay. So there's this guy, his name's Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. He's very British. Um, and I believe so in the first series, which I think must have been filmed in the 90s because it looks like it. Um, he's like this like London chef. Um, and he decides it's not a it's not a drama or anything. It's like a reality. It's like a lifestyle show. Anyway, he decides to move to the country and he gets a small property in either Devon or Dorset or maybe somewhere on the borderlands because they're right next to each other in the UK, which is like in the south. And he moves there. He's got like a small acreage, I guess, with like a little cottage. And he starts this project of like he wants to live in a way that's like more in touch with his food and where it comes from and have more of a sense of like community with the people around him and all this sort of thing, you know, like the opposite to the hustle and bustle of living in London. Um, so yeah, he starts a garden, he like gets pigs to raise and he learns about, you know, how to collect, um, how to forage for food and go fishing because it's, it's on the South coast of, the UK and um it's just a really beautiful show there's like several series of this show um and I'm obsessed with it and he also tells a lot of dad jokes but um I also 
love to cook, love to cook. And I love to garden. So when I, where I used to live in Canberra, we had um, access to a community garden plot where we would grow um, as much of our own food as we could, or at least experiment with growing as much of our own food as we could. It doesn't always go to plan. Um, But yeah, that was always basically a dream of mine is to have a small plot of land, you know, maybe like a few acres and have basically like a small farm. And then I would create like these, like what you'd call like a long table lunch once a a week or once a month or something like that, where you cook food for people um, just with all the, the stuff that you've grown or foraged from your farm. So that was like the dream. And I had taken like some very small, timid steps toward that. Like I did a course in like how to do kind of more bio-intensive um, organic farming. And like I've done sort of little bits and pieces like that. But I just think... Sometimes it's hard to tell if it's my anxiety or what it is, but I think it would be, I think it would be a slog. Like you would Mm -hmm. be owning a small business basically. Like, okay. I could get the skills to like learn about that sort of stuff more, but like with farming and I know this because my grandparents and um, some of my aunties and uncles are farmers and you're really first of all you work really hard (laughs) Um, they have much bigger farms um, much bigger scale farms but yeah you work really hard but you're also at the whim of the weather and the seasons and uh, you know climate change that's happening that's really real yeah, so sometimes, like, I think about it sometimes and I'm like, oh, my God, that would be so good. And then I'm like, I just think it would be too stressful. And I'm like, I can't be bothered. Yeah, it's so interesting. <laughs> like, obviously, I don't want it that much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that things are always a mixed bag. And I think that's what Nora sees in the book. And it kind of is like more money, more problems in the book. You yeah. know, like, um, <laughs> so that's a really interesting example because yeah, I think running any kind of business, like I think we often will have dreams of, of like, Oh, I just want to be like, I just want to own a little bookshop or like, I just want to own a little bakery, you know, in the country. Like, I feel like that those things are kind of classic. Flit around my bakery in my frilly apron and eat bread with butter. It's like, because I love reading or because I love baking, but at the end of the day, if you're running a business, you also have to be good at running a business. So it's like, oh yeah, that, that, um, unfortunate detail, that inconvenient detail of like, oh, if Mm. I, if I make that my livelihood, it would take on a whole other dimension, which sometimes is worth it for people or, you know, not to say, I don't know, maybe in 20 years, you're going to be like, you know what? I want to do that. I don't know who's to say, but I think one of, one of mine, like I said, you know, my mom is always like, you'd be a great English professor. And 
So I'll have this image of myself just like in an office of books, talking to students about books. And it's like, the reality is to get your PhD in English. Cause you would need your PhD really to be a tenure track professor, professor, yeah, even yeah. if you've got your PhD, it's probably, it just sounds awful trying to get a job. But I think for uh, English, yeah. like I remember looking into some programs and like some of them, it's like, you have to, you have to be able to translate from another language to get considered. Yeah. Like you have to stand so far apart. Like you have to, you know, you have to find your niche of research or whatever, and you have to, and academia sounds like really difficult emotionally and physically and mentally for people. Like the way you have to continuously prove yourself and prove that you belong to be there and work your way up and take whatever you can get. I don't know. It just doesn't, it's not just sitting in a little turret full of books, talking to students about books. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's like a lot of this, like cult of genius sort of thing in, in academia. And yeah, Uh, my partner, he's like in the middle of doing his PhD anyway. And, um, it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just say that it may, it really put me off. I mean, not that I was ever like thinking of doing one, but if I ever had been, yeah. I would look at that experience yeah. and be like, I don't think so. I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's interesting to look around and go, can I do the part of it that I want to do now? Can I read books? Yes. Can I talk to other people about books? Yes. It's like I'm doing that right now. So it's kind of like, you don't necessarily, you know, you can, you can hang on to the things that you love without necessarily having to feel like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, um, live up to that dream or expectation. Um, Mm. there are still ways to like do it without necessarily having the label or like external validation of like, oh, well you are a professor of English, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the thing, like going back to creativity, again and how often I felt like oh it has to be my whole career or I just like can't do it or it has to be perfect you know it Mm -hmm. has to be like at this certain level or it's not worth doing but yeah lately I've been um really just getting into photography like um film with film and have been really enjoying that just the learning process of that so it's such an easy way for me to engage with my creativity or like even things like just sketching things around the house or um singing along with uh, my partner who plays the guitar or things like that that don't feel like there's so much pressure on it. I joined a choir recently. Yeah, just things that don't feel like there's so much pressure so that I can have creative outlets in my life. But it doesn't feel like it has to be like this amazing thing, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's such a tricky thing because I feel like it is important for people to feel empowered that if they want to go for something like they can, and that these things can become more humane. And at the same time on a personal level, 
if you've chosen a path and you're on for now that you're on and you're like, oh, should I have X, Y, and Z? It's interesting to look at how much of it is about the external validation and like label that makes you feel valid in it, as opposed to, could you feel valid now in the fact that you love this thing and you do this thing and you're doing it regardless of whether you get a paycheck for it or whether someone else necessarily sees it or says it's good or stamps approval on it or whatever. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So Nora has this guide in the library, Mrs. Elm, who was her actual librarian when she was a teenager in school. And so I'm curious, like, who do you think your librarian would be in the Midnight Library? Like, if there's a person from your past that you think would maybe turn up as your guide in there. And there's kind of a hint that Mrs. Elm is like a representation of God or something, I think. (laughs) Um, And it feels like that was someone that uh, Nora felt was just like very compassionate and saw her and was attentive to her and gave her some wisdom. Um, so I'm curious, like who you think your Mrs. Elm would be. And also like, who would you be the Mrs. Elm for? Which I know is probably an uncomfortable question, but like, I think that for a lot of people, like we don't think about that enough. Um, but Nora actually does kind of see by the end of the book, she kind of is a Mrs. Elm figure for someone else. And she never would have like thought that. Um, so I'm curious for you, like, who would your Mrs. Elm be? And do you think, if, you know, if you were thinking about who do you think you would be Mrs. Elm for? Mm. So I don't really have a clear cut answer. There's not like, any one person that I could look back on and be like, that's my Mrs. Elm. I definitely have had people in my life who have felt like guides, various kinds of guides um, through various different parts of my life or seasons of my life. So like, you know, my, my previous manager from work was a wonderful um, mentor and guide who I felt very comfortable with. Even just, I've had some colleagues actually, just like teammates who have had that similar sort of feeling. I mean, yeah, I have had some teachers that have been sort of like that. I'm trying to think because I feel like that there, there must be someone that I'm overlooking. Like, where's my Mrs. Elm? I can't find her. You know, <laughs> it makes sense though that like a lot of the time it's not really like one person, but yeah. As for who I would be the Mrs. Elm for, that is very icky sort of question because <laughs> it's 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 hard to it's it's uncomfortable to think of yourself as sort of wise you know a person who could provide guidance with someone else in life I do think I have 
some wisdom somewhere in there to share. It might not be for everyone, but definitely my brother and I talk very regularly and we talk through, you know, some of this sort of deep life (laughs) stuff. And so we're kind of like Mrs. Elms for each other in a way. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe there are more people that I would be a Mrs. Elm for, but I just don't want to say it because I don't want to sound <laughs> like you think you're God for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danica, this has been so lovely and I appreciate it so much. You taking the time, an unusual time because you're in Australia and I'm <laughs> in the US and we are 14 hours apart. So this was... <laughs> worth worth the challenge of well for me (laughs) so thank you thank you so much and thanks for listening to perennials and just being you definitely have wisdom and I really appreciate you sharing thank you so much Victoria it's such a pleasure to talk with you anytime and yeah I really enjoyed this it was a very strange experience for me because I'm just like a person and I'm on a podcast it's so weird I'm just a person <laughs> who decided to make a podcast so it's weird for me every time <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the perennials podcast if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or leave a review on apple Podcasts. it really helps other people find the show You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast or send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.